0: Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Today's guest came highly recommended so he's got 15 years of coaching experience. Six of those are with the U of A Bears. He's coached at the Center of Excellence now called the REP. He's been with Team Alberta. He's been with King's University and over the course of his playing and coaching career he's a two-time Canada West champion. He's got a U Sports championship and he's won eight provincial championships. Please welcome to the show Craig Marshall. Craig thanks for doing this man.
1: Hey, thanks a lot for having me, I'm excited to talk about volleyball, it should be fun.
0: Yeah, I'm excited to nerd out about your master's degree and all the stuff you're doing in coaching, but just to, to set the scene as a player, my understanding is your parents were both volleyball coaches, so was volleyball the sport for you growing up, or did you get a chance to play anything else, or what made you invest all your time into volleyball?
1: Yeah, I actually, I played everything I possibly could when I was a kid, my parents, they were just really big fans of sports, although they were specifically volleyball coaches, they put me in everything that they could afford, essentially. I couldn't play hockey. It was a little too expensive. But I played nine other sports throughout my youth. Uh, and then eventually, when the time restrictions became too much, I decided to whittle down to volleyball, badminton, and baseball, and then eventually straight to volleyball. And I just felt like it was my family sport. Uh, my parents coached. They met through coaching when my sister was born, she was on the bench Like within two months of her birth at a national championship while my parents were coaching. Like It was just kind of the thing my family did, and I felt the most connected to the, the community through that sport, and I just loved it.
0: Nice. And as you were progressing through high school and club, when did post-secondary become an option for you? Because obviously you're around the sport that much, but it's pretty special to play at the secondary level, and especially for you to make U of A squad, right? So when did you start to look around and know that you could do this at the next level?
1: Yeah, I was pretty fortunate that I lived about 15 minutes away from Trinity Western when I was a kid, and so my parents would always take myself, my sister, or our teams out to Trinity to watch volleyball games, like as many times as we possibly could. And the ones that I remember the most are the games versus Alberta because obviously it's a pretty storied rivalry. I grew up watching Brock Daviduk actually, and uh, he was one of my idols, and I just loved the professional kind of approach that that team brought to the gym and. Uh, ever since I was a little kid, I think it was when I was U15, the first time I saw them play, I wanted to go to U of A. And I had my mind made up, even though my parents wanted me to apply for a lot of other schools. I only actually applied for U of A. And fortunately, I got in and then I uh, made that jump.
0: So, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. And did anyone else approach you in the recruiting window or because you were U of A the whole way that if you got an offer, you were pretty honest and said, sorry, I, I didn't even apply to your school. I, I don't really have interest of attending there.
1: Well, I went up to uh, like a kind of like a recruiting camp, I guess, at TRU. Uh, it was you, Anybody could go, but I went up there, and I knew Pat. My parents knew Pat and stuff, and he was really nice. He didn't have a spot for me or anything, but that was kind of the only other school I looked at to go to as an option just because I really enjoyed the volleyball that I was able to play up in Kamloops as a kid, but I was pretty much through and through U of A from the beginning, and... I was actually more recruited for badminton to go to college than I was for volleyball just because I was a shorter player who always had to set even though I wanted to be a libero. So uh, I kind of just was like, I'm going to go to U of A and if anyone does reach out to me, I'm just going to (laughs) say, sorry, (laughs) sorry.
0: Be honest. I know you might get labeled as an Alberta guy because you've been there for so many years. But was there any surprises going from BC to Alberta? Like for for Ontario, for lack of a better term, sometimes we just call you guys both from out west. And I understand they are different provinces. So with you being from BC, was there anything that was kind of shocking or just different from going to Alberta? Like are they pretty accepting of the BC guys out there?
1: Yeah, like it's pretty accepting because. Especially with the universities here, they've got a lot of players that come from different provinces. So it wasn't anything really new for me. Like when I arrived, Eric Matson was already here from Ontario, and it was just it was pretty simple for me to kind of flow into the uh, Edmonton, I guess, life. Uh, they're very open kind of community. And then the I'd say the biggest surprise to me was that beach volleyball just wasn't a big thing. I had grown up every single week. Every single weekend of my summer was spent down at Kitts or Spanish Banks or whatever it was playing beach. And I moved out here, and it was so hard to find a tournament that was, like, more than maybe four teams or something. It's grown quite a bit since then. Beach has become a bigger part of Alberta volleyball, but uh, the beach was the biggest surprise for me and the biggest difference, I
0: guess, from BC to Alberta. Nice. And before we take a jump into your indoor playing career, can we add your name to the long list of people who've played in a Cliver? Like, were you playing those on your weekends at Kitts? No, I was
1: just a little bit young, and then I moved when I was, I guess, old enough. I'd say to play in those. I've watched a ton of them, though, and like lots of my friends have played in all of them. But no, I never actually got to play in one
0: yet. So yes, we'll see what I like that in the future though. Nice, I like that. Yet at the end, so when you when you get to U of A, obviously it was your goal, and you would watch people like Brock growing up. So. Was there anything that, like, confirmed that this was the spot for you? Was there anything that stood out and you're kind of like, oh, this isn't what I expected? Like, what were some of your first impressions of being a Golden Bear? Uh,
1: I'd say I was pretty in in shock or in awe of the whole situation, the the venues, the athletes. Obviously, the coaching staff with Terry and Doc and Pops, like Brad Paploski was there at the time, the GMAC coach. Um, it was just... It, I felt as if I was on, like, a professional sports team because of how different it was from just my club settings or my high school settings that I had been in. Uh, I had no idea what high-performance sport was. I had just been on good teams and played at, a, like, quote-unquote high club level, um, but I didn't really know what it took to be a high-level athlete. So that was – it was just incredible when I got there. The first month, I was just uh, – like, a, the first thing I did I, – I, uh, one of the first practices I ever did, I had to do a, like a two ball juggle drill. Uh, it's something that we do a lot. Terry really loves. It kind of just shows your ball control. And I was with a guy who had been there for a year and he rattled off like, I don't even know, 80 touches in a row, just juggling two balls, setting at the exact same time, two balls back and forth. And I go and I get one and then I, (laughs) and then I try to get it. I get two. And that was kind of a big moment. I was like, holy cow, these guys are just so far above me. I, I think I, I'm in the right spot to learn as much as I possibly can.
0: Yeah, we've been lucky enough to have like Brock and Brett and Jaron and talk about like the setting and how that's become such a, a system at U of A. So what was your position group like? So you mentioned friend of the show, Eric Matson, who we've had on, and we've had Chris Tao. So when you're a receiver at U of A, like what are some of your individual sessions or small group sessions like as far as getting reps and who's coaching you up? And what's the focus of that group?
1: Yeah, so when I got to U of A, Eric Matson was there, Matt Tekaric was there they were the the two main liberos and then i was in my first year i redshirted so i was kind of just there to learn as much as i could from from those two and then the group that was there a lot of the focuses that we got it was essentially we'd have positional work throughout the sessions or at the beginning of the session, sorry and we would either do our defensive stuff our service stuff or our setting stuff and then whatever we were kind of focusing on for that day we would bring that into our more one sided six on nothing or six v six stuff. And then whoever was the specific coach, Pops worked with us a lot. Terry worked with us a lot. Uh, we had another master's coach at the time or in my years, Rob Diva came in.
0: Hey, so, Rob Diva, coach yeah, at Lee yeah, Volleyball diba. Club where I coach. That's a good shit. We haven't uh, mentioned him a yeah, lot. Yeah,
1: Rob Dava, He was a sweet guy. Oh, I love that guy. But yeah, so they would have their specific kind of coaching, I guess, not orders, but like. They all talked together on what they wanted to work on, and one of them would be the one that would come work with us. And that was kind of how it worked. You do your positional, and then you join in with the rest of the team. So we did a little bit of everything. Service was the main focus, then defense, and then obviously your out-of-system control stuff.
0: Now, the era may have shifted, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but because there's more universities out west, and I think Ontario's done a good job where a lot of athletes are choosing to stay home because I think the level of the OUA has grown so much. But there was an era at U of A where red shirts were common and there was guys who would even come from like the youth national team who would red shirts. So how would you say you going through that process, does Terry really manage that to keep guys engaged? Because top to bottom, that's a deep roster and there's only so many people who can dress every game, right? So how are you staying engaged and making sure you're getting better and still feel a part of the team, even though there might be 20, 25 guys on the squad, right?
1: Yeah. I think one of my years we had 24 on our team. For me, it was never really hard to stay engaged because I knew that my end goal was going to be to be a coach. So I everything that was said, I could listen and learn from, even if it wasn't specific to my position. Um, so for me, it was maybe a little different than some of the other guys that were there and that were red shirts because it didn't matter who was talking. I was still learning. But yeah, it's definitely tough to manage that many people, fortunately. Because our practices are normally two hours and because of the way that Terry understands how a game is kind of like a combination and a connection of all the different skills together. It's not just like do a skill and then think about what you have to do next. It's all connected. A lot of the stuff that we would do in practice would allow for more than six people per court kind of thing. We would be doing multi-ball drills. We would have lots of switches, ins and outs. You'd have to understand the flow. So it was a lot of um, cognitive challenge as well as physical challenge. So therefore, if we had 24 people in our roster, which we did, for the first hour of practice, those 24 people were getting a lot of reps. It didn't really matter who you were. And then maybe for the last 45 to an hour or so, that's when maybe you're 16 or four. Well, I guess 14 to 12 at the time that would actually be on the roster, those would be the ones that would get the more game-like reps. And then the extra 10 people on the roster, they would have multiple courts that we could use with other coaches that were available to get our own kind of positional work if we weren't within the gameplay group,
0: if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Nice. Thank you for sharing that. So because you were looking at this of uh, the view of your long term goal of being a coach, I'm wondering before you, you entered this academically, and you kind of climbed the ladder of certification. Was there anything that stood out in your mind that the coaches were doing that really like modeled a certain behavior? Like I, the the guests we've had on from U of A always like talk about how Terry's great with leadership, and he's good with leadership groups, and he treats it like a skill and and Brock's amazing, like top to bottom. So was there anything that even before you kind of entered the coaching world full time, you you realized that they do things really, really well that you were going to try to maybe mimic or add to your coaching portfolio down the road?
1: Yeah, I think one of the main things that I really loved about like my favorite coaches was that I never had any doubt of their passion and their intent behind what they were trying to do. They were they were very clear with what they were trying to accomplish and how they were trying to accomplish it. And like one thing with Terry was uh, it, I've always felt that he's been genuine with me. He's always been an honest, just human being, whether it's talking to me, he's talking to someone else, or he's talking maybe to me about someone else, just talking about how great they are all the time. And I always felt that that was a, an incredible quality to have as a coach, especially one that's working with, um, young men who are trying to kind of find their way in the world and trying to understand how they sit within all of that, uh, or sit within society, I guess. So I really learned a lot from Terry in that regard of being genuine with what you're doing, because I feel like that allows your athletes to feel more comfortable and therefore learn more because they're more open to what's being said. So that was kind of one of the bigger things. And then with Brock, he's just, you could see his passion through his hard work. He just is non-stop doing something he has, something that he wants to improve, something that he wants to help someone with, um, and it's those two things combined, being genuine in what you're doing and working as hard as you can, I've felt that you can't really go wrong with those two things.
0: Now it's not unusual in sport in general for former players to want to get into coaching, but you made the tough decision to kinda, lack of a better term, retire early to start your coaching career, so what were some of the conversations that went into that and what helped you land on that decision? Because I believe, I think you were two years into your varsity career that you decided to join the coaching staff, right?
1: Correct, yeah. I think, well, I know. When I was U16 uh, at the time, I, the, I coached uh, my grade 8 high school team, like in BC high school I was 8 to 12. And uh, I fell in love with coaching. I just loved being able to interact with all these other people who are passionate about the same thing. Therefore, when I started to get older and I started to be pretty self-aware of how good I was as a volleyball player, which in reality, I would have just been a backup libero the rest of my career, I knew that coaching is what I wanted to continue to do without having to feel regret of stopping and feel maybe like, oh, what if I had continued to play? I have i don't remember a time where I've really felt that I've missed Um, being a player because coaching just brings out so much love for the sport, so much passion for me, and I get to kind of see all these young um, people just enjoying what they're doing like I did when I was younger too. So it wasn't a really hard decision for me to switch to the coaching stuff. although I can see how it can be for certain others who may have had more prolific or promising careers. But for me, I was pretty self-aware that I was kind of at the end of my Skill capacity when I was in my at the end of my second year.
0: Yeah, and help us out with the timeline. Did you join the Golden Bears right away, or is that when you had a chance to work at King's University? Like, where did you start getting your your first coaching opportunities? Was it right at U of A with Terry, or did you have to kind of take a, a lateral move and just coach somewhere else for your first year?
1: Yeah, so in post secondary coaching, it was U of A in my third year. So I went to U of A, redshirted, and then I was in my second year. I was on the roster, but I was like at the bottom of the roster. (laughs) So in my third year, that was when I made the switch and I did some stats stuff. I did some video work and then I hit a lot of balls in practice. Uh, But yeah, that was the first one did three years in a row, three year, three year, four year five with the bears. And then I went to Kings uh, as more of like a full time assistant with uh, Phil Dixon. And we had quite a bit of success there. I learned a ton. It was a great group of guys. Phil is an incredible coach too. And then I came back to the Bears when I went
0: back into my master's degree. I see. Okay, yeah. Thank you for for helping sort that out. So you mentioned, I think that, and that's the role of any young coach at the university level, I feel, is you're going to be an arm and you're going to help out. You're going to take stats and do all that stuff. So were you encouraged to have a voice or did you feel most comfortable just being in that support role? Like, did you feel that you could ever speak at practice or during a timeout? Or there was so many coaches there and the way things Terry, you know, liked to lead and kind of, kind of drive the bus for what u of a was doing was that kind of your role at the start or how did you feel that you transferred from a player to a coach and kind of earned that credibility as a coach because i think it can be a tough transfer especially as early as you did it because technically you're coaching people who are older than you right correct yeah
1: i was never discouraged from talking whether it was in practices or timeouts but um Similar to how I knew my limitations as a player, I was really self-aware of my situation being a younger person who was technically on the coaching staff. So for the first, especially the first year, I didn't really say much. I was just there to hit balls, to be a friendly face, to hang out at practices and talk with the guys. And if they had anything to get off their chest, then I would kind of be there and uh, not have not have them kind of worry about anything about me kind of being that young guy, like, hey, you should be doing this, and then being like, oh, that's just so dumb. Why am I listening to this little runt? So (laughs) for me, it was pretty – I was pretty quiet, at least for my first year. And then after that, I would try and find situations where maybe I could um, parrot what Terry or Doc or Pops had said. And just – so it wasn't that I was coming up with these great ideas that were game-changing, but I was kind of just – trying to reiterate what the other coaches had said. And that's kind of how I worked my way into the coaching staff was just trying to understand how it all worked together. Cause at that point I still really didn't understand high performance sport. I didn't know volleyball at that level, um, like how to completely coach it. I didn't understand how everything mixed in and fixed together and everything. So it was just really for me an understanding of what can I learn from the coaches? And if they say something that I, see worth in repeating to the guys then I'll do that and then what can I learn from the athletes because some of them are older they've played
0: national team they've have more experiences than I have how can I learn from them at the same time and did you have any challenges going the other way because I think with all the time you spend with a varsity team obviously your social circle is going to be with that group of guys and now that you're an authority and a coach did you have any trouble managing the social aspect where you were kind of on both sides of it, right? So it's not like, I I don't know, an example, you can't go out for dinner with the guys and have a night on the town and then be the coach the next morning and be mad at them when they're low energy and not be really focused on practice, right? Like you can't have it both ways. So how did you find the switch of of going to a coach but still having, you know, guys on the team that you wanted to hang out and go for dinner and do all that stuff with?
1: I think it was easier for me to make the switch to a coach because – I kind of always felt like a coach in the regard that I was never really a big party guy. I was never really a big social outing guy, except for volleyball, where I feel very comfortable and confident. I'm a pretty introverted guy. I don't really go out of my way to go to these big social situations and stuff. Therefore, when I made the switch to coaching the few social outings that we had as a team, those were the same social outings that I would have gone to as a player too. So it wasn't that a lot changed for me. It was just that now I was a coach. I still acted the same. I was still a very, I felt that I was a pretty mature person for my age, if not just reserved. (laughs) So maybe that was, maybe that was feigned maturity. But yeah, I didn't really find a big problem with that, especially because the group of athletes that we had when I made the switch to being a coach were very accepting, very kind. Um, if anything, they, they wanted to see me succeed too. Therefore, they were just understanding that we all were there for the same thing. And I was just in a different position now. So they were, they were really great for that
0: nice nice and for you early on in your coaching career you would have had like the, the honor to win a u sports championship which is extremely difficult to do so having been through that experience looking back is there anything that stands out in your mind that makes up a championship team like i don't want to make this all about the outcome and i'm sure there's teams who who have a good culture who don't win a championship obviously right there can only be one but going through with that group and that cycle what made them special and what does it really take to be successful at the u sports level right now
1: yeah i think that what made that group special was the resilience that they had and the dedication that they showed, not just for that one specific year, but even the year before, where like we had heartbreak in Laval, where we kind of lost that first round in the tough Laval crowd. And and then, of course, the next year when we're at Calgary for Nationals, we get to play Laval again, and then we lose the first set. And so. It was just that the whole team was about resilience. We had a lot of injuries that they were able to battle through and come back stronger. And I think that's attributed to the dedication. And then the most important part of that team, I think, was their the friendship that they held with each other, the relationships that they, they valued, and they were able to completely trust each other. Well, I can't say completely. I don't know all their relationships. But from an exterior point of view, it looked like they were able to trust each other when things started getting tough to the point that they were able to look to each other, find another level of resilience, and then keep pushing. Even if we were down, it didn't matter. And I think that's what really led them to the the strength of that team.
0: And do you remember that playoff year really well? Because I'm thinking as an Ontario guy, it was very exciting for us. Like For Western to beat Trinity, I thought was an upset. And then for Western to beat McMaster was was huge, because that cycle... I don't think Western had ever beat Mac in a meaningful game like that, like in an OUA championship or anything like that. So for that to happen in Nationals was a big deal. So as you guys are taking care of business on your side of the draw, were you paying attention to what was happening on the other side and thinking, "Oh, Trinity just got knocked off. Oh, Mac just got knocked off," and maybe some advanced scouting that you guys did just got thrown out the window?
1: Yeah, definitely. We were. I remember that year pretty well, and uh, it was it was pretty exciting the whole way through because we were playing well, like up until. We, through Canada West playoffs, we dropped one set and then through the first round of nationals, we won that one. Second round, we dropped a set. And then in the final, we didn't, we didn't lose a set either. But I remember watching Western beat Trinity and thinking, wow, that's just incredible. Like they, they've just fought so hard. They beat them the year before as well. Like they have their number and that was kind of the thing that was going on. Um, And then they beat McMaster and I was like, holy cow, that's incredible for them. Because like you said, it had been a long a long time, if ever. And I remember talking with Sean McKay this summer because we were coaching together on Team Alberta about that, uh, that final and he I remember him saying that they were just they were just playing out of their minds. they played and were so devoted and, and motivated to beat Trinity to beat Mac and like show that they were a top level team. And then uh, when we were able to play them, I don't know, they, the things that they did really well, They faltered a little bit. Uh, Their passing was just a little bit off, so then they weren't able to establish the strength of their middles. So for us, although we had scouting reports for Trinity, we had a scouting report for McMaster. We were still able to um, regroup once McMaster or once Western kind of knocked those teams off, and we were still able to come up with a really strong, what we felt was strong, of a game plan for them. And I think it worked pretty well in the final as well. So
0: one thing that i always find impressive is just both terry and brock's ability to adjust in game so you mentioned you had a plan going in but being being in a, a coach and in that support role how are these decisions being made to change or adjust as the game's going on because I, I think you know whenever we have a middle on the show i think it's funny and daniel Jensen was good about this is coach is telling me this guy hits to five i'm blocking to five and all of a sudden he's hitting to one right like we're not playing against robots and people are going to adjust and find ways so With you coming from such a strong coaching staff, when you're really learning some tactical stuff about the game, who finally pulls the shoot and says, okay, we're going to change it versus let's play this out and wait for their tendencies to take over? Like, I think adjustments are probably the hardest thing to do. And I'm just wondering what goes into finally pulling the shoot and making it happen.
1: Yeah, a lot of different things would go into those decisions. We have a couple different coaches always taking stats on the bench whether it's the opponent's tendencies, our tendencies, passer ratings, server ratings, uh, setter tendencies, whatever it may be, we have people taking stats. So that's kind of the first thing that we look at. Is this person on the other team doing something we weren't expecting? So that's number one. And then the second one would be kind of what we're seeing from our athletes. Are we seeing them looking disheartened? Are we seeing them looking motivated? Are we seeing excitement? Are we seeing a lack of energy? Etc. So that's the next one. Then the third one I would say is kind of like your feel. So the, like Terry as the head coach or Brock as the head coach or even doc, when he's sitting right there and we're having those conversations, it's like, I really feel because of these stats, because of this change that they've made, uh, because of the look that we're seeing on these guys, I feel that this would be a good positive change for our team. So it's not just like one thing. It's a lot of different things. We have all the voices that are coming together. And then if it uh, eventually it gets to the point where Terry as the head coach or Brock as the head coach would make that final call based on
0: all of that information. Awesome. Awesome. So as you kind of complete your undergrad, when you first attended U of A, were you aware of the Masters of Coaching? Or were you also looking at, like I think UBC is a great program? Uh, the Canadian Sports Institute has like the advanced coaching diploma. Like when you were looking at pursuing coaching at a higher level what options did you look at or were you going to be a u of a guy and that was going to be where you wanted to be and take your master's in coaching there
1: yeah when i originally went to u of a i entered into arts to be able to do business because you had to do a year of general arts or general sciences to get into business at the u of a but i really didn't find anything that i thoroughly enjoyed through the classes that were all the pre-businesses, like the econs and the calcs and the stats and all that kind of stuff. So that's when I ended up switching into uh, a PE degree. So originally, I didn't plan on doing a master's of coaching. Uh, I had just planned to go to U of A, learn what I could as a coach, and then get a business degree. Um, eventually, though, when I started struggling in school because my passion for school wasn't as high as my passion for volleyball, <laughs> I switched into PE. And then started to look at those other options. So I looked at UBC uh, to try and do a master's of coaching. I looked at the U of A, and then those were the two main ones. I looked at a few others, but the UBC and U of A were the main. Obviously, UBC being closer to my home, and then U of A being where I was with a situation and a context that I really enjoyed. Eventually, I chose U of A because I thought that I kind of had unfinished business with my undergrad. I didn't do as well as I'd liked. I thought that. I, I let myself down kind of as a student. I just kind of put it to the side. So when I was fortunate enough to get a second opportunity and I was eventually accepted into the master's program, I just thought it was the perfect opportunity for me to learn with the Bears again because, I, once again, I'd taken three years off to go to King's and coach there and then also right my wrongs as a student. So this has been... Yeah, I guess it's been like 15 years in the making, although I didn't always know I was going to do the Masters.
0: Nice. And obviously you would have been surrounded by people doing the Masters. Like you mentioned Rob Diba, who came out of province to take the program. And I'm not sure, but I'm willing to bet that every every few years, there's somebody from that program who's part of the varsity team, right? So did you have a chance to pick some people's brain who had gone through it? Or are you just reading the course guide and knowing you wanted to be a coach? That's what made you lock in at U of A?
1: I think it was more so the people, like you said. Rob dyba it was incredible. I learned a ton about volleyball, about uh, beach as well, because he's a huge beach coach. And then Brock went through the program, and his, the words that he was able to speak about it were very um, helpful in my decision-making. And then uh, my current roommate, actually, Carolyn O'Dwyer, who coaches with the Pandas team, She also went through the program. And then there was basketball coaches that are my friends that I know who went through the program. So it was essentially just all of these people who I thought were very intelligent, kind, caring, and great coaches that had gone through this program and had good things to say. I thought that that was a very good kind of evaluation of the program itself. Not to mention once I got past that part of like, okay, all these people say it's great. Why is it great? Then I started to research and the professor's they're dedicated, they're passionate, they have incredibly high levels of knowledge and then it, the the place itself that was kind of the third piece that locked it in for me. I already live here, I really enjoy the people that I'm around, the community that I'm around, therefore this is the perfect place. But yeah, it started with the people. The people were what made this program what it is.
0: Yeah, and just kind of walk us through the course information because obviously you're going to be in a course with basketball coaches, soccer coaches, coaches from all different sports, right? And it's up to you to make it practical to volleyball so what would some course topics be and then how how are you making it volleyball specific or getting out of it what you need right because obviously you're working with u of a but when you're developing maybe like a yearly training plan are you encouraged to work with like a youth team to be a head coach or being an assistant coach is enough practical experience to get you know the value out of the courses you're taking
1: yeah i think that what this one of the largest strengths of the master's program is is though even though i'm in a class with all these different types of coaches from different sports the assignments the essays the projects whatever they may be they were put forth in a way that you now had to apply it to your sport so it was essentially the idea that you have a theory and then you need to try and apply it practically and I think that was the strength of this program is that not only did I have my practicum placement with the Bears team so I could try to implement some of the things that I was learning, but then I also had these essays or these paper uh, projects that I then had to research further, not only whether it was, let's say, periodization plans, but I also had to specifically research into how that works within volleyball context. So even though I got to hear all these different ideas from other sports as well. I think the strength of the program was that it forced me to now think about those in within my own context. I can't just take what they do because it doesn't make sense, because they have different like seasons, they have different types of athletes, et cetera, et cetera. So I really enjoyed that part of the courses. And I think that that's how I was able to learn quite a bit with those components.
0: Now, one thing that I'm fascinated about with coaching being involved at my level and being a learning facilitator with the OVA is just so much of it is based on tradition or how people have been coached. And it's really hard to kind of, lack of a better term, like educate or shift the thinking. So you going through this course, have you been able to discover like any common practices that you've helped maybe change thinking or open a conversation or work with other coaches? Because I think like, I think block training is a perfect example. We were all grown up and we did block training, but now that that's been basically disproven and random practice is better. Not everybody's a believer in that, right? So how have you found some stuff or was there anything that kind of sparked your mind? where you are kind of like, huh, I've always done it this way, but I can see how this way might be an improvement. So going through the course, was there anything you discovered is like a common practice that you're like, huh, I really want to look into this further and got a lot of interest from it.
1: Yeah, definitely. There's there's so many in volleyball, too, so many examples. Like you you could take your basic serve receive practice where you have some people serving at one side, some people passing on the other side, the servers stay for a certain number of serves and the passers stay for a certain number of passes. Like that, that, that in itself is something that you could look at and challenge or problematize because essentially the transfer from that blocked type of practice, as you mentioned, is going to be a little bit less than maybe the type of practice you'd get that was more game-like. So what I really enjoyed doing was this year for my practicum was looking at serving and how can we kind of adapt our serving practice? How can we make it a little bit more effective in having our helping our athletes transfer what they learn in practice to what they actually do in a game? So I was able to work with Brock, work with Doc, work with Terry, and then work with my kind of co- academic coach developer, my academic supervisor, Dr. Jim Dennison. And so we came up with different ideas. Like, number one, we have all this technology at the U of A because it's a very well-funded, diverse group of intelligent people. So we use, uh, for example, a radar gun, right? that's They're pretty common now. You have these little pocket radars all over the place, and people just love using them, and it's fun. We wanted to try and combine that information that we could get with the kind of holistic feel nature of learning, right? Like you need to be able to feel what you're doing. You need to understand what you're doing. So what I would do in practices this year is I'd have the radar gun and I'd be tracking it. And I would track it onto a board. And on that board, I would have what were essentially service bandwidths. So you could have, let's say, a float server, and they like to serve the ball at 65 kilometers an hour. Okay, so maybe that's like their most comfortable place, but we want to try and get them to serve a little bit faster uh, at a little bit more consistent rate. So I'll put up a bandwidth where the bottom of the bandwidth is maybe 65, and then the top of the bandwidth is 70. So now during practice, they can see where all their serves fall within that bandwidth. So if they notice that they're serving consistently at 63, 63, 61, 62, they're going to now be able to look at the board. Oh, that one was slow. Yeah, it did feel slow. And now they can start to connect the more analytical, statistical side of the game with what they're actually feeling when they're in the game. Therefore, when they get to a match, they can start to understand what their different serves are going to give them, whether they're serving it hard and low and it's still going out of bounds. They're going to now understand, okay, I'm maybe a little bit too jacked up right now because for me to hit it that low and have it still go out of bounds, it's got to go pretty fast. So that was kind of my focus this year of trying to adapt, just a a basic serve-receive practice. And then on the flip side of that is trying to create a more realistic atmosphere for them to serve in. For us, it could be as simple as just putting one passer on the other side of the net. So they're not just serving into an empty court anymore because they're past the level of acquiring the skill of serving. We want to have them have to think about, okay, now there's someone over there that I'm trying to beat or I'm trying to make struggle. So... It could be something as simple as that, but that's essentially how we were or how we try and adapt the common practices that have kind of become your go-to things in the everyday is trying to make it a little bit more representative of a game. So now they're dealing with the different flows of energy and the different perceptual things that they can see. So then when they get to a game, it's not so different and they're more used to it.
0: All right, you've got me fired up. Let's go for it here. So uh, on the beach, uh, we've discovered with our beach wall, there's about a 5K window we found, and obviously variables about like how high they jump or how far back they are from the baseline that... Basically, discovered well, we didn't discover it. Germany really takes credit, but we've kind of stolen the idea that float isn't an accident. Have you guys mm-hmm. found anything with the indoor ball that there's a window of speed? And I think Kerry McDonald at UBC, when they won, he did a great job that like serving was really a weapon for them. So, obviously, yeah. there, there's going to be variables, but is there a, a safe to say a window that if you serve the ball at this speed and that it's dead, like it will float and it will move? Like, what have you guys found in the study? Because you're sitting on a mountain of data, right? So, how have you guys really closed this in? and what can you share with us and give to the public in terms of what makes a good float serve right now?
1: Yeah, so there I through my practicum, I went through and tried to find as many of those types of studies that I could. So carries was one, and then there's another, um, Javier Lopez, from um, he would work with the pandas. He's come across uh, to work with the pandas quite a few times. He's done a service study, and then there's a couple service studies done by molten themselves on their ball and the macasa ball but they were done with uh, machines anyways the the results that were found were different depending on the person that was hitting it or the machine that was hitting it the environment that the ball was in the uh the type of fabric that is on the ball so whether it's more bumpy or more flat so what we found was it was more important for us as coaches and for our players to understand how to serve, how the serve connects to the other parts of the game, than it was for us to hit a certain number. So although we had bandwidths for our athletes to serve, those bandwidths were more based on the contact of their jump float, their ability to hit the float properly, their control over that float, and then how the float would interact with setting up our block because we were a pretty good blocking team. So um, we didn't, we chose not to have specific numbers that we were trying to aim for because we had so many different types of jump floaters. Like we have one guy who's six foot eight and contacts the ball much higher than one of our serving subs who I think he's 5'11", right, Uh, if that that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So uh, with all of the data that was out there, um, we decided that it was more important And this goes along with uh, the paper by Javier Lopez that a good serving strategy that connects to how you play the game is more important than trying to serve at a specific number, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, definitely. So what what comes at a premium for you guys? Are you subscribing to the… I'll give them credit gold medal squared philosophy that we're going to serve the ball flat and into space. And we want it to float. Are you guys what when you say set up your block, are you trying to get the setter off the net? Are you trying to make them run towards four? Like when you're, when you're really looking at linking skills to your defense, what do you mean by that? Is like an overall tactic you want your servers to think about when they're back there. Yeah.
1: So we essentially want them to find the balance between what they feel comfortable serving as their best serve, quote unquote. And, Um, what fits within our game plan. So we try and find essentially critical factors. So if, let's say, if we were to serve the pipe thread on the other side short and 100% of the time they don't set it, then we want our athletes to be able to know about that because that's going to help our block quite a bit. We'll only have to worry about three options and maybe a dump if it's a back row, a C ball or something. But what we're trying to do is essentially make the game simpler for our blockers, slow the game down off a touch and then transition to our offense. So we would have a specific game plan-oriented thing to give them. If it was serve the front row left side, make them move into the court, shorten up their approach, force them to go up the line, which limits their angles, then that would be one of those specific things that we would do too. It's not anything groundbreaking. Teams already do this. But we wanted our athletes to find the balance between serving as hard as they could and going for aces, which is a high-risk high reward situation and then just trying to put it into a specific spot to try and get our block that advantage. Cause even if you serve it to the right spot, but the serves too easy, they're not going to really be taxed or uh, taxed too hard in what they're doing. So we wanted them as intelligent thinking athletes to be able to have that feel throughout a game and because you never know like you might get back at 24 23 where you're you're behind and your legs are starting to cramp up or something like that you might feel something in your body as an athlete and your coach is telling you to hit your big spin serve but you physically don't think you can as an athlete on our team you need to be able to make call like it's just not there right now i need to be able to do something else that still sets our team up to be ahead in the rally if that makes sense
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And where do you stand in your own philosophy, whether it's at a university level or at a kid's level with on the miss serve. And I find that a funny thing in our sport where if you, you just, Keep your ears open at a youth club tournament. All the parents know, oh, we're missing too many serves and we're just giving points away. But then you go to the opposite end of the spectrum and listen to somebody like Courtney Thompson talk about like the U.S. Women's National Team, and they never talked about missed serves. They wanted them to be confident and go for their serve, and, and we were going to be okay if we miss a few, right? So where do you fall on that spectrum that missing serves is okay if we're doing certain things or it's not okay to miss a serve?
1: Yeah, I think we're more towards the Courtney Thompson side of things where the only time we really talked about missing serves is to say, like, we want you guys to go after it in this drill. We have to be prepared for misses because we're trying to push the envelope a little bit. So we want you guys to now be aware of that added situation so you can deal with it as an athlete. It's going to slow the game down, and now you have to deal with that as a server you're going to get maybe one extra serve. So you can go on the first serve and then you get one bonus serve. Or maybe you need to hit your serve within a certain bandwidth to get that bonus serve. So now we're trying to guide the, I guess, thinking about serves towards something specific rather than just saying a blanket statement like, we can't miss any more serves or this serve has to go in or something. We want them to be able to deal with all of those energy flows because once you get to a game, uh, like a championship game or something that really matters versus a very strong opponent, just putting a serve in is essentially giving them a point anyways. If they're siding out at a level of one of those top teams, so we don't talk about not missing serves. We do talk about being able to work through missed serves because that's more important to us. Is that you can you can miss fifty serves in a game as long as you make that one at the right time, then. I'm pretty sure your team's going to forgive you if it ends up being the proper thing at the right time. Now, having said that, um, we're not getting to the point where we're missing 50 serves in the game. We're not getting, we our athletes understand that that is also a part of the game. You need to understand if you've missed that many serves, maybe something has to change because it's not there today or because you have some sort of, I don't know, misconnect between your body and your mind and your process. So, Uh, it's not about us as coaches telling them when to make, when to miss. It's about us as coaches setting up an environment where they feel that they can now develop their own serving um, mentality within our team philosophy.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. And one thing you you mentioned previously that I kind of want to take a deep dive into, because I think it's, it's a great buzzword in our sport and talking about transfer. And I think all coaches want transfer. We want to make sure that what we're investing in time wise is going to pay off in a game. So. First of all, how are you finding ways to measure that or how is it proven? Because to me, it's too surface level an argument to say you should do random practice because the transfer is higher. Well, where's the proof in the pudding? Where's the actual, you know, proof in front of my eyes that says this is going to transfer more? So what have you found in terms of giving coaches the belief that this drill will help us win more games?
1: Yeah, so I'll use the serving specifically because that's kind of where I focused most of my time this year. How we were able to try and measure transfer is the information that I would gather during practices, um, what I would write on the boards with our bandwidths, they would be at X kilometers per hour. And then when we would get to our games on the weekend, we would also have someone on the end lines taking all the velocities during the match. Because that creates a difference. The competition environment is different than the practice environment. So for the most part, the serves that happen in competition are going to be, well, for float servers I'm going to speak specifically about, they're going to be maybe a couple kilometers an hour slower because you're more worried about putting the ball in play. It's just kind of like a subconscious thing that we've seen. So the way that we were able to see transfer this year is, number one, What were athletes doing in practice? What were the numbers that they were achieving? And what was their consistency? What was their feelings? And then trying to compare that to the game. So we would take the numbers, the feelings, the talks that we would have during practice. And then after a weekend, we would then look at those numbers again. Okay, so they're consistently serving maybe two kilometers lower. And then at the end of the year, okay, they're consistently serving two kilometers more than what they were at the beginning. They're consistently feeling more comfortable with what they're doing. So it's it wasn't just one thing, but we were looking at their stats that they were doing, and then we were talking with them about how their confidence levels were. And then you can kind of just see it when you're just watching from the sidelines. You can see the differences in serves, like the the aggression levels, whether they're putting them in, all that kind of stuff. But yeah, that was kind of it, looking at the stats, talking with them, and being able to understand how that affected our team. So.
0: Nice. And one other thing that we were just talking about before the show that you've kind of taken a deeper dive in is how have you managed like the cultural, environmental, like the influence of the athlete? How have you taken a deep dive into that to kind of understand what the athlete needs and how to coach them up the best? Because I think that's an important team dynamic that there might not be as many public practical ways to execute it, right? So with you doing a focused study on this, what have you kind of discovered in that area? Yeah,
1: I'm still super young in this area too. Like even all of the the studying that I've done around this, I feel like the more I study, the less I know, uh, <laughs> just because it's such a it's such a broad area or topic. But specifically to the in the regards of like looking at our team atmosphere or the the culture, so to speak, of the team, um, I think it's really important that as coaches we're trying to be aware of more than just what. Uh, happens like in our gym specifically i think we need to be aware of how our athletes are looking at school how do they think about school how are they acting in school how do they interact with people as social beings right i think all of these things are really important within creating a team culture and i think that's something that brock has really put a large focus into the last couple years is trying to understand how the team culture is going to grow or how he's going to foster it being the new head coach uh, after Terry's like long tenure and successful tenure. So um, from my coaching standpoint, working with Brock, we focus a lot on trying to understand how our athletes interact with each other, how they are motivated about certain things. And then we try and create events that are going to foster that same motivation and interaction between them. Because if then if through those, those environments, through those uh, events, we can create and foster a connection between each other, then that is only going to strengthen their bond, their motivation, and their willingness to go after the goals that they have set and the successes that they want in life. So that's the main focus for us is trying to understand
0: how it all works together. Awesome. So can you give me and the listeners an example? Cause I'm not a big fan of trust falls and all the fancy team building stuff. Like what's some things that you do with your team? Cause looking at U of A's roster, it's not unusual for you guys to have an out of province athlete. And certainly for having Billy all the way from New Zealand and then to add in the mix that even though they might be from Alberta, you might have some guys who are from a city, you might have guys who are from a farm, right? So you have all these different dynamics coming together to make a team. So how are you guys getting that culture that you talked about? Because I'm sure at U of a it is strong enough that it, there is some tradition there, but year by year, how are you guys building that and paying attention to all the awesome stuff you just listed?
1: I think it's really important, an important aspect of our program uh, that... I think it was Jaren who talked about Terry really gives really gave a lot of power to the, the leaders of the team to go out and have those social events and make sure that they're trying to engage each other and communicate with each other, because that's kind of where you find common ground and you're able to bond with Brock. It's no different. Brock gives a lot of um, power to the guys on the team to try and, come up with events or situations or just team things to do that the guys themselves can bond things that we specifically do as coaches, uh, is just, we had this year, we decided to do a preseason retreat and it was an excellent opportunity for us to get together at a cabin, um, Not only were we able to just hang out and play board games and go swimming and play spikeball, whatever it was, but it also gave us some more structured time where we had an evening where we were able to speak as a team. We were able to to say things that were really true to our hearts, that we felt that we really wanted to be a part of the program. Um, And it wasn't about Brock saying, this is what needs to be done, this is what needs to be done. It was about Brock understanding what the guys wanted to have done and what the guys wanted to have as a part of the culture. Brock has an idea. Doc has an idea. I have an idea. Terry, same thing, but it's about understanding how all of those guys ideas fit with all of our ideas because essentially that's how we're going to create our culture is when everyone understands that they're a part of it and that they have a say in it and that they feel that they're heard. So for us, Communication's big and we foster the communication through things like that retreat or uh, post practice meetings or monthly meetings with coaches
0: monthly meetings with mentors those are all different things that we do to try and foster that and how have you navigated any tough situations because i think in theory this stuff is amazing but if you've ever tried it like i'll pick a random example that probably hasn't happened but it, just to give you an idea say you're you're on a road trip and you want to give the guys autonomy and you say hey what time are you guys going to bed tonight and they say well we we brought our xbox we're staying up till 1 we'll be ready for breakfast in the morning and you know as a coach that's not the best decision but you want to give them autonomy you want them to contribute to the culture right so how do you navigate when somebody brings something to the table and you just know it, it's not going to get it done or those don't match the values how are you Squashing, for lack of a better term, just bad ideas that aren't going to positively affect the culture.
1: Yeah, so I'd say there's kind of different tiers to that. So like the ideas that are completely against team rules or against like code of conduct or whatever, which I don't, I don't really remember any that we've had since I've been around. But if those ones arise, they're squashed very hard. Like, no, you <laughs> cannot do that. It's not allowed. That's essentially it, right? It's like it's as simple as like breaking a law. You can't do that. No, no, no. Uh, The ones where it's like they're staying up too late or we ask them what time are we going to go to bed so then we can be up at this certain time. And then maybe they're like, okay, we're going to stay up till one or midnight or whatever. Then it's about us trying to find a way to remind them of the goals that they were the ones that came up with. So that's why it, all, it where it all ties together with like a preseason retreat uh, with our the communication and the talks that we have to try and form this culture and identity that's why it's so important that it isn't just us coaches because when it gets to a point where you have to choose between doing the hard thing, which might take you closer to your goal and then maybe doing the easy thing, which is watching a movie or playing video games till early in the morning. it needs to be something that is actually specific to them so Hey guys, like were you guys the ones that wanted to win a national championship? Yes, we we still do. Okay, so do you think it's good if we're staying up till two in the morning before an eight a.m. practice on the road and eating McDonald's before you go to bed or something like that? Right? So it's just a matter of us understanding each other and finding that that link back to what we both or what we all are trying to strive for. And yes, we're human. We can't do it all the time. We're not perfect all the time. And we understand that as coaches. And I think that's the other thing is sometimes there's just certain little, I guess, leeways that you have to afford. Certain extra little time to themselves or, I don't know, little desserts that they can have on the road, things like that. Because we have to look at each other as humans. We aren't just machines that we can say, all right, it's time to win a national championship. Let's go hit the button, and do it. So I think that's really important.
0: And how have you found in your own experience navigating those those goal-setting sessions? Because I think it is it is important to set goals, and there is one school of thought that says you need to set your goals as high as possible because if you don't, it means you don't believe in yourself. So that means every year we're going to try to win a national championship. But for you, a guy who's coached the club and the youth level, you understand that sometimes the it's just not there. You just don't have the horses, and it's going to be really challenging, right? And- And to bring up that Western team we talked about before, Garrett mentioned to me on his episode that there was guys on that team who they didn't really focus on volleyball. Like it wasn't their main thing. They weren't going to live and die on the identity of being a national champion, and and that played off in their warm up where there was guys who were just dancing to the music and having fun. But they were great team guys, right? So when you say you want to win a national championship how do you measure that everybody's bought in and I I guess that comes down to the actions, but how do you make sure you're staying connected to those goals? Because I, I think it's easy to say in September, we want to win a national championship, but all the things you just listed, right? Like, are we going to be focused that Tuesday practice in January? Are we going to show up on time and be ready for serve and pass in February? Like all the little things that come together to being a national champion, right? So how are you managing that? Yes, this is something they actually want to work for and they understand like the cost of that goal. Yeah,
1: that's a really good question. I think that's something that I would ask myself every day, too. I think that's probably something that Brock goes over every day. For my experiences as a head coach with like my youth teams and the provincial teams and stuff, I think it's important that you aren't just setting everything into one goal. You need to have different aspects of the sport itself that are being addressed. So you have maybe let's finish top three or let's win a national championship, whatever it may be. But you also have to have other things that are important to the goal setting process. So uh, uh, let's, let's improve our blocking ability by the end of the tournament. Let's try and increase the amount of blocks that we're getting by X. Uh, Let's see if we can make every single team meeting on time, like just little things like that, that are happening. I think that, you have to have that understanding that we as humans are changing, especially throughout an eight-month or nine-month university season, whatever, however long it may be. I think we also need to understand that our goals may need to be able to shift with those changing things as well, right? So if you have a devastating injury to a couple or one of your top players or something— Maybe you need to be able to shift what you're thinking about and how you're approaching those situations because the devastation of losing something, someone that integral to what you're trying to do, can affect how you approach your everyday life. So as coaches, that's what we try and do is we have our set goals, the athletes have their, the goals that they've come up with within our team, and then we're trying to now navigate those situations as the year develops and as we as humans grow and learn and change themselves because it isn't just a stagnant state. It isn't just a one thing. We're going to win a national championship, done. It's all about that adaptation.
0: Awesome, awesome. This is really good stuff. So I'm just curious with you going through your master's and your own practical coaching experience, is there anything you look back on and be like, man, I, I really, not regret, but I really shouldn't have done that or that drill I used to really like, it just doesn't get it done here because I think it's, it's important for coaches to try things and be willing to make mistakes. I'm just wondering if you could show me and the listeners an example where you, you were like us and you made a mistake and you're kind of like, oh, I really learned from that, but uh, I'll never do that version of the butterfly drill again or little things like that.
1: <laughs> yeah, definitely. Like there's, there's so many drills or games or whatever that I used to do That I'm glad I used to do because I was able to kind of learn from them. If I never did them, then I never would have learned why they don't really work uh, in the context that I'm in now. So, for example, uh, one of the best things ever is just if you have a couple of courts and you have maybe 12 people on a team, I loved with my clubs, just serve to an open court, chase the ball, go to the next court, or go back to the same court. You just toss up a ball, serve it, 15 minutes, takes up a good chunk of time. Your club practice moves forward. All the athletes are engaged, et cetera, et cetera. But realistically, what are those athletes actually learning? Maybe if they're trying to learn the actual skill of serving that they have never done before, it's like a rudimentary thing to them, that's good. It's lots of opportunities. There's not many distractions. There's not going to be any pressure on them. Very good for learners, beginners. But as soon as you get to a point where they understand the basics of the movement, they understand what they're supposed to be doing, then that drill needs to be transformed. There needs to be more aspects added to it. It needs to challenge them a little bit more cognitively as it would physically with jumping and hitting and all of that. So that I think that's a really basic example that I've learned from is once an athlete learns the basic movement of something, you need to slowly try and challenge them more and more and then be aware of where they're at. If your challenge was too great, you need to tone it back a little bit more and then try and build them all on. It's, it's, it's very similar to a scaffolding where you're trying to slowly build them up little by little, adding more things that they can now deal with and handle
0: I'm wondering where do you stand in the spectrum of transfer? So we just had John Mayer on the show, a great beach coach, and we talked about creating situations in gameplay that can kind of replicate. Because I think when we when you take a deep dive and you learn about transfer, if things are specific and game-like, it's going to transfer more. So to pick a, a, another random example, say I'm a middle and I, I close and I block the right side and we transition and we run a 30. Well, if we're only running maybe a set to 15 or a set to 25 in practice, I don't get too many opportunities to do that skill in practice. So how would you break it down as a coach where I get the opportunity to transition and hit my 30 without making it like off a coach's toss and now it's block training and now it might not transfer, right? Like how are you providing learning opportunities with still maximizing transfer?
1: What we do with our middles is um, we try and utilize a more non-linear pedagogical approach. So the common practice of linear pedagogy is you learn one thing, then you learn the next then you learn the next, etc., etc. So for blocking, you let's say you need to work on this footwork until you get it right, then we can worry about hands, then we can worry about jumping and timing, et cetera. What we're trying to work on is we have our middles, we give them some reps to, to essentially get a feel for their movements, then we're going to try and bring them over to block and read off of our setters who are working on their own thing. And now our setters are getting to work on their setting while they have to try and read a middle blocker and our middles are trying to work on their blocking while they're trying to read a setter. So essentially along the spectrum of representative design, which is like not anything like a competition and pretty much the exact same as a competition, we're trying to go closer to the competition side because the idea behind um, tr- the transfer like framework that we're working with is the closer it resembles, your training resembles a competition, then the more likely the same perception action couplings, like what they see and how they act, are going to be present in practice as they are in training. So with our middles, that would be a very broken down kind of low volume training for them. And then when we get to games, that's when if we want to try and add in extra scoring systems to really bring out specific things. Like your example of trying to work on a middle reading a 30 and then reacting to an overload. Maybe we have the offense score two points, for that specific type of play. So now it's probably going to come about more and our middles are going to have to read that situation more without them only focusing on that situation. So they're still playing an entire game, but now they're going to see that one thing happen a little bit more because of the the scoring system or like it's a task constraint that we've put on this situation. So that's kind of how we're working or trying to work, I guess, within our situation is creating perception and action couplings that are more relevant and related to our competition environment to increase our transfer.
0: And would you recommend this nonlinear approach for a youth coach? Like just another random example, we've all seen it. If you've coached kids, you try to teach them their footwork and their spike approach. And then as soon as you add a ball, the, the, it's gone because their focus is gone now they're working at. So would this nonlinear approach work for a 10, 11 year old? Or is there a certain level that they have to have acquired a skill that you can apply this? Yeah,
1: I think the approach itself and from all of the the studies that I've looked at, it's more based on the development level of a skill or where you are rather than it is specific to age. Obviously, if you get too young, then they don't understand what you're trying to teach. Maybe they're physically not capable of doing it, so you have to have that. But it's really context-specific. So as a coach, you are aware of the context you're coaching, the type of people that you're coaching, what their capabilities are. So then you're going to try and tailor their learning environment to that. And all the nonlinear approach is, is that you're not assuming that they only learn in a specific order. You're assuming that if you create an environment that allows them to interact with a lot of different things, or even only a few different things, they're going to take little bits from that, and it's going to be part of their experience now, which they can learn from. So it's just a different way of thinking about learning rather than thinking that learning is so specific and regimented because that the current trend of a linear approach is more tied to how a computer reacts. You download a file, you put it onto a USB, you transfer that information to another device, right? That's not how humans work though. Humans learn in so many different ways. Right? like I didn't learn things about nonlinear pedagogy. Like I didn't learn some of the basic things until after I had understood some of the more complex things, just because that was how my brain interacted with that information. It's the same thing with coaching. Even if they're young, even if they're old, even if they have a high level of skill or experience, or if they have a low level of skill or experience, if you as a coach can understand the context, then you're going to be able to create
0: an environment in which they can learn. Amazing. Good, good stuff. And I, I'm just curious, uh, I'm looking at the clock. We've taken a lot of your time, but I, I do have a couple more questions. What have you discovered in terms of feedback? Cause I think one of the better quotes I've ever heard from coaching and I, and I can't even give them credit. I don't know, but, uh, individuals never get tired of being treated as individuals, right? So everybody craves feedback. They want the attention they want to learn. So with you going through this, not only in a practical level, like coaching at the level you are, but also doing your masters, what have you learned in the value of feedback? Cause I think when we're talking about transfer in these game like drills, Volleyball, the, the drill could be anything and your feedback can make it a blocking drill or can make it a setting drill, right? So how have you kind of grown as a coach and, and the value of feedback and when to give it and do you stop drills? Like what can you just give us a few tips on how to really coach up an athlete and when are those opportunities to do it during practice?
1: Yeah, the biggest thing that I've learned and changed through my coaching is that feedback for me is a tool. It isn't the learning avenue it's not how the athletes are learning it's uh, it's just a, another thing that they can be aware of that can add to their learning environment so if let's say we're trying to get our middle blockers to focus more on reading the 30 and then being able to handle the overload what I say is only going to, be a part of that environment that they're learning in. It's not going to be the only thing that they're focused on. They're focused on completing the drill, reaching the task goal, whatever it may be. And what I say is now going to affect how they handle those things. So I'd say that's the biggest thing that I've learned. And one of the major things, especially coaching within the youth age group is to think of yourself less as the avenue for learning and more of a tool that the, athletes can use to help themselves learn
0: nice nice and then how are you drawing their attention to it right because let's say you're coaching a youth team and they just want to play so if you're not going to intervene that much and you want them to play which is awesome i think the more touches they get the better and the more we're, we're not sitting around talking and practice the better but how are you drawing their attention to those those really focal points that you want to build the drill in like my last example that you could play six on six and turn it into whatever drill you want right so how are you making sure the athletes focus and attention is on those specific details you want.
1: Yeah. For me, it's about setting out clear um, goals of the drill. So a clear idea of what they're supposed to be accomplishing. And that, that could be how number one, you first kind of organize the game or the drill itself. So if you're playing six on six and you want more um, tips and rolls add a bonus point for a tip or a roll that scores, then from there you vocalize it. You're talking about it. If you During that gameplay, you're noticing that they're not really doing it a lot, then you can maybe bring uh, mention to it. You could ask them questions about it to try and get them to think of, hey, in that situation there, how do you think you could score differently, right? Uh, There's just – yeah, you're just not trying to speak at them. I'm trying to limit how much I'm speaking at my athletes because then – uh, they just start to feel like they're not really a part of the learning process. They're kind of just being told how to learn or what to learn kind of thing. And I think that's a big thing is if they feel like they're a part of their own learning, then they're going to start to take more, uh, more onus on being active in that process and they're going to learn more themselves. So, yeah, it's less about me telling and more about the questioning aspect
0: that combines with the makeup of the drills and games. And can you give us a couple examples of what success criteria would be for a few of your drills? Like, are you keeping score and there's going to be a winner and a loser? Are you putting them in the drill for eight reps? Are you putting them in the drill until they get six out of eight? Are you putting me in the drill for six because I'm a weaker passer, but you're better than me and you need 10 to prove that you need those reps because you're going to be targeted more like you're going to be a libero maybe like where do you manage the success criteria for your drills?
1: Yeah, once again, it's kind of specific to what you're trying to focus on, but uh, I'll take like we're playing a 2v2 game. Let's say that it's more of like a warm-up capacity. We're trying to develop their ability to to uh, think about a situation and tactically approach it. Uh, so their goal, one of their goals would always be to reach a certain score. Like they're trying to win the game itself. And then if you want to have something else that they're focusing on, so in this 2v2 situation, let's say for one of the women's club teams that I coached, they didn't want to hit the ball hard. It was all about tips and rolls because that's kind of how they were they were grown up. If they made an error, it was a horrible thing. They were told never to swing really hard. So we would play 2v2. Your score, whoever gets seven first wins, but there's the secondary goal. If you're able to score on, let's say, four of those points with hard swings, then you get like a three-point bonus in the next game or something. So we're trying to essentially figure out ways to have – goals not just be score based but then you're having them focused on that task goal of what they're actually trying to learn technically tactically whatever it may be
0: awesome awesome so shout out to friend of the show brock daviduck for connecting us i don't think we ever would have spoke without him and this is great i've learned a lot and want to thank you for coming on the show this is this has been good and i bet our listeners have learned a lot too so one thing that's become a tradition on the show is just to tell a funny story at the end to give us a laugh. so obviously you've you've played at a high level, you're coaching at a high level, but you're you're not exempt to you know just the life of volleyball and some funny situations pop up here and there. So can you tell us a funny story before we let you go?
1: Oh yeah, uh, one of my favorite coaching experiences I got to coach the U seventeen women's team Alberta a couple of years ago, and we got to go down to the high performance championships in Florida. This was the year of Canada Games where most of the provinces went down there. So there was no Canada Cup. Our first game, we're, we're in obviously an international division. So we get to play against USA Youth Red and, and uh, Wisconsin. And then our first game of the tournament was against Peru. So our whole team, myself included, because it would have been my first international coaching experience, we're all really jacked up. We're really hyped Super excited. We walk 30 minutes to get to the gym or however long it was in like 30-something degree heat. Uh, we get changed. We get in the gym. We're all hyped up, starting our warm-ups, and uh, we're on the center court. We have the live stream, um, and it's just a really cool experience that none of us have ever faced. So we have been preparing. We look over at a couple of the other teams there, and there's like a U15 division, the brand new. This That was the first year they'd ever done it. And there's a couple of the little teams warming up and they're so cute. They're just having a good time running around. And then there's another team that's warming up close to us and it's another like little team. So we're like, Oh, okay, we'll just kind of take this space over here. They're having fun. We'll let them do that. Sure enough, we get on the court, we start our warm up, and this other little team, um, uh, little team of you 15 year old girls was the Peruvian team that was put in the wrong division. Oh, so we get out there and we're, doing our hitting warm-up and just crushing balls. And the Peruvian girls are all standing or sitting on the bench with their mouths open, just like, how are we supposed to play against this? Sure enough, the game starts, and they don't even block. They're playing like a six-back defense or like six people playing behind the three-meter line defense. And our girls are just crushing balls. And I was like, let's just try and get this game over with, try to aim maybe away from them a little bit. Um, but if we can kind of get this over with, we won't have to worry about it. Needless to say, our team was a little bit disheartened, but it turned out to be great because those, that team of Peruvians, they were moved into the correct division the next day and they had awesome games and our team went and cheered them on and it was so much fun. But yeah, that was a pretty funny experience for me because I was so excited for my first international experience and we played, (laughs) we played some 14 year
0: olds. (laughs) This yeah. is it? This is the show, guys? This is what we work yeah. towards?
1: <laughs> yep. <Yeah.
0: laughs> <laughs> well, Craig, that's awesome. So thanks for sharing all that you did. And hopefully, you know, if Terry or Brock ever listen, that they don't get too upset with all the details you shared, because I definitely learned a lot. So thanks for all the stories and, and all the lessons you gave us today.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me on. It was a pleasure. I feel honored that you wanted me and best of luck in the future.